Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about raster versus vector. What are they? What are what are raster? <laughs> what are raster-based graphics or and vector-based graphics? We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about how we use them. And we're going to talk about sometimes how to get back and forth between them. So stay tuned for that. And if you've got questions about rasters and vectors, uh, then go ahead and throw those into Makana. And if you've got quest general questions about digital media production, virtual meetings and, and event production, go ahead and throw those into Makana as well. And let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Mitchell, what do we have? Jumping away. Thank you, Alex. Uh, first in, Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking, yesterday, Alex said that the number one thing he's working on now in AI, was getting clips from the Office Hour show on YouTube. And I think you referenced these two tools. Are these the ones? And there's two links to them. Yeah, those are the ones we're testing. Yeah, so I don't know if they're going to be the winners or not. But, that you know, there are so many apps out there right now uh, that do do everything you can imagine with AI. So uh, so we're just getting started. But I think it's I a lot of times for me to learn something, I need to have a mission. <laughs> I need to have this has to get done. I don't I'm not very good at academic, uh, you know, like, let's play with AI, you know, like, I don't really have so I usually am trying to get something done. And uh, this seemed like a good one to, to work on good, Chris. Yeah, you know, Jack has been playing with the thing. And uh, John might know what it's called. I can't remember. Yeah, it's Opus. And, We've been using it for a long time. Yeah. Opus, same thing. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah. So my take on it, as an editor is I can't I can't look at it and not want to change it. I, I, I just can't. I mean, well, every, so, every time there's something, I was like, eh. Yeah, so I, there's a couple of things. One is all I'm trying to do is something very mechanical. Like, so I'm not trying to have it recut something or cut a highlight reel or do anything special. All I wanted to do is take all the questions from the first hour and cut them up into individual files. Like that's, um, that's, that's all, it's a very, very simple mission. The complicated part is having it get it right so that when I say the next question, which right now, if I did that, then I would screw it up. But, but I say the magic word um, and, uh, and it will, the idea is that it will cut right after I say next question to right before I say the next question so that that way I just end up with no next questions and I just end up with the, you know, um, the, the, the person, you know, asking the question. And so, so that's the goal is to is to figure that out and and so if i can if we can figure that out what it means is that we can put up stuff on youtube and i can have a playlist that's just constantly building of all those questions so instead of having imagine instead of having a um the the little time you know time markers that we have in the in the video we might have those for the second hour, but for the first hour, just imagine they're just all individual files. And if someone wants to share one or do whatever they want or, or save it, they don't have to save the whole show. They just save the questions that they want or the answers that they want. Also, we could have multiple playlists. So we could have a playlist that is just the chronological answers, but we could have audio answers and video answers and you know everything else and just and break them up. So if you just want to listen to one or you know one segment of it or one, you know, um, you know, that kind of thing. And it'll be easier for other people to build their own playlists for, with it as well. So I think that it's it's really not designed as a, I think a lot of people are using these as like, how do I make it more social? And how do I repackage my stuff? I'm just trying to make it easier for um, folks watching Office Hours to organize the answers, you know, and questions together. And so it's a relatively simple, um, simple thing that we're trying to get done. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, when we were talking about next question mix misfires as part of uh, a question being answered or somebody just says something close to it. 
Couldn't we uh, teach the AI to recognize the host's voice and identify the host and when only the host says, next question? Yeah, so I'm, goes. these are all the things that I think that we can do. I, I just don't know if it's all, you know, the ideas for it, if it sets markers. Like one of the things that uh, um, Ken and I were talking about was the possibility of building either a chat GPT, you know, just building a, uh, you know, a, a plugin that will do this. Um, there are a couple of things that may build EDLs. And so we could have it build an EDL. That way it would just pop up and someone could look at it for just a second and make some fine adjustments. But yeah, looking at a single track and making the decisions, like it could, for instance, uh, build, build the cut list based on just the track from, from, the, uh, from the host. You know, so it would, it would just listen to that track and, and build the cut list there. That way, no matter what anybody else says, it's just listening to that for that edit. And then it applies to the whole thing. You know, so... Um, and, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, and again, my imagination of what it can do and what it can do is probably different currently, but that's usually how we get somewhere is to think about where it could go and then try to figure out how to push it there. Um, so I think that you could also have it be activated by the reader so that it would listen for next question and then it would just cut to right before the reader starts saying something. So, it, you know, and you can end up with a relatively clean edit. Um, that way. And so, um, so anyway, so I, I, I think that there's a bunch of tools and I think these tools will, you know, obviously get more interesting as we, you know, as we go, but us trying to figure these things out and making requests have pushed a lot of software forward. <laughs> so, so, you know, like, uh, you know, us thinking about something out, out, outlandish and then trying to make it happen um, is how we kind of help push things into the next, uh, you know, to where they want to go next. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. I'm not in a hurry to get myself out of work here, but um wouldn't it be cool if everybody could put a voice print to AI and when the question is asked, it's done in the voice of the person that asked the question? Yeah, yeah, we've 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 thought about that. Um, I mean, we've we've definitely thought about the idea that you could you could have people have their own. And I think that there, it wouldn't be out of the out of the question <laughs> to, to have that actually happen. Um, you know, I think that what would also be interesting is to use AI so people could ask the questions. You could have people ask the questions and have it convert those questions to text. So it so the AI converts the so the question is not something they typed out. It's something that they the, the hard part for that is that they it'll be hard if they ask a long question <laughs> because they'll run out of room. But but the idea is is that they just maybe it says you got five seconds or whatever, but what if it took that question and then converted it to text? so that we can see it and people can vote on it. Um, so that text is there. And then, but when we get to that question, we hit play, you know, so that you hear them actually asking that question. Of course, it would also have to decide, like, is the audio quality good enough and everything else. The real challenge with that is, you know, but, but you could definitely do a voice print as well. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, doesn't the question, ma I haven't uh, done the back end, so maybe I'm, I'm off base here, but doesn't the question manager in Makana uh, in the show uh, hit a button which brings up the uh, large uh, panel for the question reader? Couldn't that just capture the time code at that point and yeah, put it into a, uh, a bookmark list for the, YouTube? That's, that's how it's done right now. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, um, so we have a, a, an output of those um, that, that they're, the problem really is, is that, we do it so, you know, we're, you know, what happens is someone finishes the question and I, and some, I just go, next question. And oftentimes uh, th there'll be idiosyncrasies where the question doesn't move as fast as 
I said it. Your manager so, goes, "Whoa!" He said, "Next question." <laughs> right? Yeah, and so it's it's on. It's pretty close, and we probably could pull it off. But if we really wanted it to be clean, I think you'd want to analyze the audio um, to make that actually happen. Um, now, there's you know, there's another possibility of it being minimally impactful, which is that it builds an EDL of where it thinks they all are. I mean, because the other thing that you do want to do is refer potentially back via time code to the, what the question was typed and then put that into the title or summarize it and put it in a use AI to build a little title for it and then push it out. You know, we're trying to figure out how to make it completely automated so that it's not, you know, that it's, that, that we have it. And again, we don't need to do anything. Um, you know, like we can, we can keep going the way we've been going and it'll just be fine. It's just that we, um, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's a game that we're playing. And then we can have chat GPT do the answers with little avatars of the panelists. Yeah, we could, you know, we could have a chat GPT. What we could do is if we get stumped or even just have chat GPT, we could have some, a chat GPT, what we're missing here is the chat GPT operator. So someone in the background that, that can raise their hand as chat GPT for a, for questions. It's and like then beat it, the clock. And, and we, we, we just go Chris and then Mitchell and then we go and Let's listen to ChatGPT thinks they have an answer and they hit it and ChatGPT um, uh, says it and we probably give it Chris's voice and have it say, say it sarcastically. It probably say, wouldn't hallucinate any more than Chris. we do. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Go ahead, Chris. What makes you think that hasn't been happening for a long time? <laughs> you think you that's go. Fenwick you're talking to? Come uh, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, one selling point of IMAX film is the 18K resolution. How would you ingest and process resolution that high in a modern video effects pipeline? Even Apple ProRes only supports 8K. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, Douglas, resolution isn't everything. The way you do it is, is you would compress it through, do lossless compression, intraframe compression on each frame. That's how it's done now. And uh, uh, where you can, you know, preserve that resolution. But the bigger problem than the resolution is the color depth and the dynamics, the ability to capture light over a broader range, which film really can't hold up to. Uh, you know, that uh, IMAX film, 18K film, uh, is not as good at capturing a broad range of contrast as a digital sensor you know, even though the digital sensor is only 8K, the digital sensor is going to look better because it has a broader contrast range and can work in more lighting situations than that uh, film can at 18K. And that the reason 18K looks better than, you know, 35 or regular 70 is because there's more pixels and mean, meaning more light. It has, you know, a larger capture area and can average out the, when printed down, it, it can give you a little more contrast range, but it's not, that's not the main problem is not resolution. It's well, I mean, color, color depth and contrast. Range. Right. And, and generally what happens is these, these, the films are scanned. And so if it was, uh, you know, if it, if it scanned actually at, at 18 K, um, then it, it can be, I don't know. I don't know what scanner would do that. To be honest with you, I think that it would be a very, you know, for those things. I don't know if the, some of the film scan, most of the film scanners I know are can, I don't, I have to look at that. Yeah, they just put a different gate in the machine. It's, yeah. it's all set up to do 70 millimeter scanning. You know, oh, right, right, right. Photo right, right. They just, yeah. you know, so it's then, just going through sideways. They just change the aperture frame. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So the when they scan it, um, they'll, 
when they scan that out, it just comes out as frames, raw frames. Like, so you just get these frame sequences that are, that are rendered out. Um, and then, uh, what, you know, I think that the maximum resolution in resolve is 32 K. So there's some headroom there. So as far as color grading, um, it can still go into resolve, which most films go through at, at least at the end. Um, and then the compositing tools that they use nuke and, and others are definitely capable of very high resolutions. I don't know, 32K probably at least. Um, they're, they're designed to kind of handle that. So where they do the compositing itself, um, you know, in, in a program like, and the most common one in the industry is Nuke for the, that level of compositing. And so they, I don't think that they have any problem with the resolution as, as Courtney said, and the color, the color, all that stuff would probably be managed in Resolve. Um, it would take, you know, it's one of the reasons to, if, if you, um, when they say, uh, when Christopher Nolan says that, uh, they, they use mostly practical effects. One reason to not use too many vir virtual uh, or visual effects, which there were still a lot used, um, but you have to be careful of them because the render times will be very, very long. <laughs> these are these are massive render times at that resolution. Um, but it, what's interesting about it is, is really shooting. We talked about this a little yesterday, but I think that when you're a director at a level that you're really going to create something visually stunning. Um, it's, I think it's also nice to know that you can record it in something that's probably going to be, uh, have a long life lifespan of looking really, really sharp. <laughs> so, so I think that that's part of the advantage of shooting IMAX. Um, next question. Let's make today show your calculator day. If you have a classic, let's see it. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I'll start out. There it is. <laughs> your calculator. Yeah, this is, yeah, there you go. I don't, I, don't I, have, I have a calculator on my phone and on my computers, but I don't have any, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think a lot of us have calculators. Um, uh, Preto's got one. He's got one handy there. Where is it, Preto? Is it, is it, is it within arm's reach? I you got a TI, Fifth don't Amendment you? privilege. <laughs> Where's that yeah. abacus that used to always be? It, yeah, exactly. It's back here. Yeah, we just, someone's got to have an old TI somewhere. So No, I've got an HPC, it's 41CX. There we go. Next question. Next one is. Oh, do you have it? See, see, I just I want to screw up the system. See, let's see, let's see it. Oh, Here there it comes. is. Pulls it out. Eh, eh, eh. Look at that. Yes. Yeah. And he's got the hard drive attachment to the top. Yeah. I think Your I had that one at some point too. John. What's that? That's Twelve awesome. uh, bits. It's uh, re reverse Polish notation. There's no equal sign. Right. So right. it works like it works like a standard assembly language programming. So you enter into a register and then you do an operand onto the register. That's awesome. So ten enter five times. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I had one for I think I might have had that one um, a long time ago, and uh, my 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 uncle had a TI and he was uh, he was very. He, took, he let me play with it, but only when he was around because it was very expensive. <laughs> I, remember I was like, and I was like six or seven or something like that. Uh, next question from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina: Is there a good resource to learn about blend modes in programs like After Effects? It's got a static color image, and elect to blend a black and white animation to increase the luminosity of the highlights, like a pulsing neon. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Wow, there's a ton of things. I mean, uh, blend effects uh, or, bl or modes have been around Adobe a very, very long time. So if you're used to using Photoshop or even After Effects, uh, it's uh, it's one of the classics. Uh, many, many, many YouTube videos that can, uh, that can help you out there. It's a, it's a useful and often misunderstood program or part of a program because you just forget it's there. 
Yeah, the one of the best ways to do it is is if you. Uh, I got to say there 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 is a resource that I don't know if it exists anymore. Um, the mo- it was funny. I uh, there was a very early on one of the I think book number one or book number two on Photoshop was written by a friend of mine named David Biedney. And David um, wrote this book and he was just the person I'd always ask if I had questions about Photoshop. And, um, and uh, he, uh, a friend, another friend of mine who um, camped to, for Pixelcore to talk about how blend modes work, built a Photoshop document where you could change things like the curves and it would show you everything about how it affects it. Or you could change something else and it would show you how it affected the curves, like how it affected the image. It was, and, and David looked at me and he said, that's the most technical Photoshop document I've ever seen built. And that person now works at a big company down in Cupertino, um, managing, <laughs> managing stuff down there. But, but it was the most it would do exactly what you're asking, which is that you you could see all the blend modes. And as you changed any setting anywhere, it showed how it affected it, you know, um, and the curve levels. It was an amazing document. And we kept it around. I lost it somewhere in some move, some computer move somewhere. I probably couldn't open it now either. It's probably done in Photoshop 5.5 5 or 6. But it it would show you those things to to make a long, a short answer very long. What you're probably looking for is add or 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 screen. Um, if you're doing that and you're flickering that, um, your a screen mode will probably um, take you pretty pretty far down that path. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, a frequent uh, office hours visitor is Trish Meyer, and uh, Trish and uh, her husband Chris uh, have done quite a few uh, books on there. So I would do a search on that was a they literally wrote the book on after after and effects. A, and a lot of times what I do is I put uh, gradients over top of things. So I take an image and I put a gradient. I take a, I, I make a gradient that's a, like a strip um, of a gradient over top of an image. And then I just start scrolling through them because what I can see is what the gradient does to the image um, across its band. So, so if you just take a, you know, like a little, little like um, eighth of, of the image right across the middle or whatever you're trying to affect, and then and then start running through it, um, you'll start to see how it's affecting those things. And so I have to admit that I interactively, that's usually how I figure out what I want to use. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asks, where does low frequency affect in a, your uh, audio work? Uh, Atmos highlight, uh, right channels? I'm just trying to figure out, what is that height, right? Yeah, so... Um, it's yeah the the LFE is the low frequency so that usually is it depends on the, the system but I think it's typically it's eighty hertz or below um, and it's really something that you're it's designed for you to feel more than hear so it's below what you're really listening to and you're feeling it now there's a couple different ways that, that gets managed um, in an IMAX system for instance it's mixed into the L, the LFE or the that bass is being mixed in from the other channels. Um, but a lot of times we have discrete control over those channels. So when you see a 5.1, that's five uh, positional channels. And then and then the LFE is, and if, if you 5.2 means you got two of them, it might be stereo uh, stereo base, which is, would be, you know, and subwoofer and LFE are not, they're not interchangeable. They're, they're similar, but, but the, um, the, so, so anyway, so those are the things that, that and it usually is something fairly large because it's got to move a lot of air. Um, to you know, to make that actually work. Um, so, but when you see, but you don't use, definitely don't use it in the height channels. Um, the height channels are, and so if you see a five one four or seven one four nine one six, those types of things, that's how the the first number is what's going around the horizontal. The next number is the LFE, 
and the last number is the height channels. So, so those are the that tells you what you're, what channels you're you're looking at in Atmos or or in just a channel based operation. Um, typically, it is left, right, center, LFE, and then left surround, right surround. That's five. Um, and so then then you add two more for the back for seven, and then you split that for nine. Um, so, so, but the LFE is typically one, but not always. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and it's pretty, at those lower frequencies, they're pretty non-directional. You can't tell where it's coming from. So usually there, there's some very, very large drivers that are at the base of the screen, not behind the screen because they'd shake the screen too much. And uh, they're behind the proscenium at the, at the base of the screen. Usually it's where they place them in a movie theater. But uh, as to where it's positioned in Atmos, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's a separate chat. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, has a question. Google co-founder Sergey Brin has returned to Google, a la Steve Jobs, to save them from an existential crisis with AI. Can they keep up with Microsoft and OpenAI? Good, John. They don't need saving. They acquired DeepMind. DeepMind was founded in 2010, and they have the, probably the most advanced AI technology on the planet. Google's sitting on the biggest portfolio of AI on the planet. They just didn't release it. Uh, because they were worried about the social reper repercussions. Microsoft, they, they were f forced by Microsoft to release all their product. I've been getting better results on BARD than GPT-4 lately. So they're doing fine, Paul. Thanks. I think it's more that he's just interested. <laughs> like, like finally they're doing something that he's interested in. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, um, my experience, limited as it is, is this kind of a change could be a really good thing um, it's probably a good thing because, but I'm thinking of it more in terms of the of its stock. I think I think this will uh, in this the stock market is a little bit about math, but a lot of it is about um, the sentiment of the of the buyer of the uh, shareholder, and something like this can restore a lot of faith in a company. Uh, if you look at the history of stocks that have gone through. Uh, the return of CEOs, and Apple's just one of them, uh, you can kind of see, it's like, oh, we got a new CEO, went up, and then it went down because people were disillusioned. And then the, the original CEO comes back, and it's like, do, 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 do. You know, it, it restores people's faith in the company. Um, there's no, you, you can't take away that, that kind of, you know, need for the brand. Like, people need to uh, believe and trust in the people that they're investing in. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they uh, um, what he does there, but I think that it's it's a good time. I I do think that it's more that he's fascinated by it than they're in trouble. <laughs> so they're, I mean, it's really if when you understand how Google AdWords work, it's like looking into the sun. Like it it is you know they they just print money with that because it's so effective, and so so it's just really they they have something that's generating a lot of revenue, and I don't think it's going to be. Uh, I don't think it's going to be shaken anytime soon, but I think I think it's I think he's more interested in it. I think he was just bored with what I think a lot. The, the hard part with with Google was very early on they came up with something that made a lot of money. I mean, the AdWords they haven't been other than YouTube and a couple other things. They haven't been that successful at doing anything else. <laughs> like they just keep on throwing things at the wall, and but they they can quit those things and they can let them go because they're not part of their core revenue, which is AdWords. <laughs> so, so the, uh, um, so I think that that's the, that's the big thing, but yeah, as has been stated before, 
if you look at everybody using Gmail and and uh, and all of the you know search items and all the returns, I mean the database that Bard has is intense. Uh, next question: Douglas Carmichael, an Oregon festival will be the first ever to use a hydrogen-powered fuel cell to power stages. Does this tech have a future in our industry? Good, Courtney. Well, I don't know about our, our industry. I mean, you can get it right now. Go out and buy you know, the 2023 Toyota Mirai. It's been out for a number of years. Powered by hydrogen fuel cell. Converts uh, hydrogen into electricity, which drives electric motors in the car. Just pull the engine out of that thing, and uh, you can use it to power all your equipment in your house. Of course, it's kind of hard to get a hydrogen truck to deliver to your house, so that's a bit of the problem. Uh, there's not a, a wide place to plug these things in. The Mirai has the problem. They've been trying to sell this thing. It's $50,000 for years. Um, the only byproduct is water. Uh, so, but the problem is you have to fuel it at a hydrogen fueling station, which are few and far between. So the only places they sell those cars to are people like that have fleets of cars and can and, uh, put a huge hydrogen tank in on their fleet lot somewhere. And all the cars come back to one place every night so that they can be refueled. Other than that, you have a hard time using something like that in today's infrastructure. It just doesn't support hydrogen. Good, Mitchell. I think it will be uh, a great future for it, considering it's the most abundant element in the uh, cosmos. Code, Chris. Can't hear you, Chris. I think hydrogen is hard to transport safely. There's there's a hydrogen station on our way to when I take my wife to work, and she asked me one day. She goes, "What is that?" I go, "Don't don't, don't ask. You don't need to know." <laughs> but there is one <laughs> in Berkeley. Yeah, I I think it's hard. Uh, it's it's hard to compete. I, I understand the argument. There's an argument for hydrogen that it, and te- it's technically better. I, I I fear that it's the Betamax of 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 uh, energy, uh, which is that you know the VHS is just electricity, <laughs> just batteries. It, VHS is was clearly not better than than Betamax, um, but it won on a couple other things in some usage areas <laughs> that kept it really busy. How about um, super VHS though? Yeah, it was just, I mean, the, the whole, the whole format was not as good as beta. Um, and, and so the, but anyway, I think, that the, I think that this, this one is over. I mean, I think that we're, we're moving towards uh, batteries and we're not gonna, I mean, we still got some gas for a while, but, but I mean, obviously the tra- trajectory is to, is to use, um, to, to go to a more battery operated or less car operated in general. Go ahead, John. I just have a one word comment, Hindenburg. <laughs> there we go. That's what everyone thinks about when they think about it, about hydrogen. They're like, well, um, next question. Next question is from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Filming with QCAM Ego. Left and right images are produced. I am trying to use a gimbal so that the full resolution may be recorded. Thoughts? I still think that when you look at the, 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 the QCAM is a, is a, uh, it's a stereo 180 camera, I believe. Um, and I still think that you should really heart consider trying not to move it very much. You know, really think about what you're, you know, how you're put it, producing that. We've done a lot of um, 360 and 180 where you're moving and it makes people queasy. And it doesn't matter whether you um, stabilize it or not. I've used a full steady cam with an Ozo, you know, and uh, it doesn't matter whether you've, uh, uh, stabilize it or not, it makes people queasy because you're moving and their their inner ear can't feel it, but their eyes see it. 
and it, it's not a great experience for most people. So, so you just want to really think about whether you want to move things in a 180 experience. Usually the 180 experience wants to be stationary. So um, I, would, I would really think hard on that. But you could put it on a, you know, some kind of gimbal, but I, I don't know. I think that in general, um, you know, and, and I think that you'd probably look at things like the RS3 um, from D, DJI is probably the one you'd want to look at. But, it's, um, but again, it's, it's a, uh, or RS2 um, base unit. But, but, I, but I would really think hard about doing it. It's, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily a good idea. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, Meta's Llama 2 may have passed the open AI as the top AI dog. Discuss. Go ahead, John. Paul, you fell for the clickbait again. It is not. It does not surpass OpenAI GPT-4. Maybe 3.5, and that's a maybe. More importantly with Llama 2 is the open licensing. And so that's way, way more important. The, the LLM looks fantastic. We've been playing with it, and it looks really, really good. And now that the license has changed, uh, we'll see what happens. But it's great. It's going to cause prices to go down because the API for for GPT is still very expensive. Um, and also, when we talk now that we're talking about open, um, I, I one thing that Jason sent me earlier today was uh, that uh, you know Apple, Nvidia, who Adobe, I think all got together and really are pushing, and Pixar are pushing the open USD. Um, so it's not quite not not AI, but could be eventually, uh, or could be connected to it. Uh, USD is USDZ is the universal scene description with Apple and uh, Pixar built, and Apple has been using USD and USDZ for um, their AR. And now they're really pushing an alliance to have everyone support USD. Um, open USD means that it'll be, you know, open sourced, you know, and, and it may, it'll be freely available. Um, this is, this is a typical thing is you control the things that make you money and then you try to commoditize everything else. You know, so uh, you're seeing Apple and, and Adobe and others want, want this to be something, they want the model generation and model creation to be something that is as close to free as possible. Um, you know, as they build up assets for for their VR um, tools, so it's a uh, it's pretty good. I think it just came out today. Was it today, Jason? Yeah, it was today. Yeah, so uh, so pretty. That's you know, we're going to keep on seeing more and more. We're going to try to at the at the bottom of the of the hour if there's some news items, uh, go ahead and post those in. As uh, we'll we'll send them to me right now, but we're gonna we'll make it more formal. But at the at the bottom of the first hour, we'll probably try to give you some updates on anything. Um, that was released over the last day um, in our industry. So so stay tuned for more of that. And a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the first hour. So if, if you've got questions about general media production, obviously some AI um, and uh, or event production, go ahead and throw those into the into Makana for the first hour. And then, of course, you can ask um, yeah, your questions about vectors and rasters uh, for the second hour. Uh, let's go, go ahead and jump into the next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, please discuss diegetic and non-diegetic sounds and when these might mix to height channels, LFE channel. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Okay. Um, for those who aren't massive word nerds, diegetic sounds are sounds that the characters on film can hear. Um, so the voice in your head, you know, the narrator, um, is a diegetic sound. Um, the non-diegetic sound is the uh, stuff like... Well, every everything else that that would be a sound. So in this case, uh, any time that it belongs, you know, in in the three D plane, in in the highers or the lowers, and that that's really just a sound designer's choice. 
Yeah, people have played with this a little bit. Um, so the you know the idea is that one of the things that you could do, you probably wouldn't use the height channels. Height channels you don't use that much. What what you use height channels for typically is to add a little air to something. So you don't put because a lot of things don't support it. So it's kind of like one of those things that if you really push at it, um, people may not get the same experience. Um, and so. The height channels are not where you'd put it, but you may put it in the surround or in the rear surrounds, um, you know, where you, and so the idea is that if you have an inner monologue, you might hear a bunch of things, but you might have an inner monologue that is coming out in the left or the right surround, like, oh, I can't believe he's doing this or whatever. And you could have this, and people experimented with it. It usually disorients people, folks, and so it hasn't been that popular, but but it is something that is, uh, uh, we've been thinking about using it for uh, interpretation, like putting interpreters in the in the left or right sound so that you can hear the person speaking in their own language with their own um, experience, but you can hear someone telling you what they're saying. Um, and so that's that's the thing we've been kind of playing with. Haven't really mastered it yet, but we're thinking, you know, working towards it. Go ahead, Courtney. This probably happens the most with music. Uh, when people are traveling in a car, you'll hear the music track, it'll cut to the people in the car and you'll hear the music track going along. And then you realize, well, is this just the score or is this music playing on the radio? And then they'll turn down the radio and the music track will go down. And then you go, oh, it's playing on the radio so they can hear it. But a lot of times you don't, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just the score and they're having a conversation over the top of the score and it's not anything the characters can hear. Or a lot of times somebody will take a sound effect uh, in especially in auto scenes like a, the whack, 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 whack tires going over something and then they'll it'll develop into the score and i've had i've seen movies where you you, you hear that noise and you go, what's that what's that noise is the car running over something especially in interior car scenes and then you realize oh no it's the composer he has just taken that sound and turned it into the score and that that sound carries over the next scene or something and you, then you realize oh that's what it is so it's a mind-bending trick the uh one of the best transitions from from one to the other is uh in gross point blank he goes into the unimart and you can hear um the guns and roses of him going in and as he walks into the store you hear the soundtrack playing and then as he walks into the store it fade it, it cuts like he opens the door and it cuts to the music of that song in the store without losing a beat and it is one of the best audio transitions I've ever, every time, ever, and there was a point where I thought they had taken it out, but he, I was, I was wrong. I was watching it the other day. I was trying to show somebody that and, and I couldn't find it, but it's, it's still there. Yeah, go Chris. One of the tricks I do on occasion, uh, I've done this probably too many times, um, doing corporate, you know, like happy face videos where it's, uh, you know, we're covering a corporate bash at a, a hotel in Hawaii. Uh, somebody invariably will give me a GoPro shot of somebody going down a water slide into the pool. So you have some completely ripped off pop music playing along and maybe a little bit of Nat sound. It it works best if there's not a lot of Nat sound at this point. And then as soon as that GoPro hits the water, you crossfade to another version of that same cut of music mumbled and gargled and then you fade up all the splashing sounds of the gopro and all of a sudden it it's like you're listening to the music that they're listening to on the pool deck but now you're underwater listening to yeah. it and it's really fun and i do that and you can always see the room it's it's really fun when you do those kind of edits because you get to watch a room react to it yeah and there's always a reaction to the underwater trick 
And that's a, you know, that's a very good example of a kind of a surprise and delight uh, thing that you might add to a, to a show that you don't need to do. Doesn't tell, it doesn't tell more of the story. It's not, it's not core, but it just surprises people and delights them. Nobody will think to ask you for it, but when you do it, it's like, oh, how cool. That's kind of the definition of, of, of a surprise and delight moment is the, oh, like, 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 oh, you know, like, and just, just this, you know, just if it, that's what you're trying to create is just like, uh, that was really cool. You know, like, and, and it didn't, wasn't needed. No one thought about, you know, and, and for larger companies that do a lot of big events, sometimes there's a lot of discussion about how to create those, you know, the, and, and you want to create one or two an event oftentimes. We, um, we sent another editor to do that job this year cause I don't fly anymore and there's no bridge to Hawaii yet. And, um, <laughs> So we we sent a new guy, and I showed him. What, I go throw in one of these; they'll love it. <laughs> go ahead, Jason. If you ever want to see just a masterclass in the transitions between diegetic and non-diegetic sound, watch Baby Driver again. It is truly masterful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Michael Smith from Silverado, California, USA. Local IMAX seventy millimeter projector is not working. And was wondering if the digital copy would fill the screen as much as the 70 millimeter version. Uh, good, Courtney. I don't think so. I think uh, the digital copies are uh, 4K copies and they're a different aspect ratio than the two by three or whatever the 133 of the original IMAX is. So they're, they're more rectangular shaped than square shaped. So I think you would see a cropped version in the digital copy. Good, Chris. On a side note, I saw a video of uh, somebody receiving the copy of a 70 millimeter or a, an IMAX film print. It's astonishing how big it is. Yeah. Like, was there a forklift involved? Yes, there was. Oh, yeah. It's 600 pounds. You know, it's not something you're going to carry around. Yeah, it's, they're huge. Huge. I, I was, um, I was somewhere where there was a, there was a, uh, like Pacific Rim IMAX version or whatever, just sitting on a platter and I just opened it up and it was just this massive, uh, image. And I was just like, oh, I need, I, you know, it, it, I used to hand out when I taught my visual effects class, we would talk about film and I would hand out and I lost it a long time ago, but I had a little thing where I had, you know, like the little eight millimeter, 16 millimeter, super 35, you know, uh, you know, you know, and then and then I'd have IMAX. It was like this giant frame, you know, that was that was there. You really got got a sense for the for the scale. Yeah. The the problem is, is they don't use the seventy millimeters that often. You know, and so the problem, you know, if there's something's not working, you don't find out, and then trying to fix it when you're in a release is challenging. So that's the. the but I think that I do think that the success of Oppenheimer is probably going to lead to more seventy millimeter, um, you know, um, films. You know, so I think that. Again, I don't, you have to remember that in the blockbuster world, eh, there's really only about 10 movies a year. So there's really, I mean, 10 movies a year pay for everything, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, and, and, uh, I mean, you know, there's about, it's been about 10 or 12, it might go down to five or six, but it's typically been 10 or 12 movies pay everybody's way. And the rest of the movies are, you know, ho you're just hoping that they hold their own and not lose any money. And so when you have something that can fill theaters, um, people start to pay attention to, um, you know, how to how to make profit there. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. It can't be a blockbuster if there's only 13 projectors, you know. You can't sell enough Again, tickets to make it profitable. Just, it's just, it, it is, it, 
they're, they're, they're looking at the theaters themselves. Each theater is profitable, though. Like the, each one of those is profitable, and and they they're very profitable. <laughs> like you know, so yeah. yeah. So but if you know, you can when you shoot a movie in a town and they premiere the the film in that town, and half the town's people are show up as extras, you can sell out that that uh, theater, that one theater in the town that we shot every day. It doesn't make the right. film profitable. <laughs> Well, the film, yeah, but the, the the films that have been doing 70 millimeter generally have been profitable. <laughs> like, you know, so that's the, I mean, the, the, it has to be behind the right directors that are going to take advantage of it. And there's a process to it. But I think, again, there's, there's really, we're getting down to a point where for a large release, um, blockbuster release, we're going to get down to about 10 or 12 directors that are allowed to do that. Like, you know, like it's, it's not gonna, we're not gonna, you know, like we're not gonna keep on, I mean, the, the streaming and everything else is kind of taking over. There's not gonna, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of business in small theaters anymore. Like it's not unless, you know, the, the, because you can watch it at home at a higher quality than you can at a small theater. And that's the, that's the real challenge. Um, you know, the smaller theaters have to figure out what they what makes them relevant, but the bigger theaters, I mean, the, the ones that are the, the really large theaters, the Dolby's, the uh, IMAXs, those are the ones that, that are the future of what's going to be left, you know, uh, when the water keeps going up, you know, the, the, the sea level of what people can do at home is rising fast, you know, and the, and the problem is, is an 85 inch TV at $2,000 and a, and a Ambio, Sennheiser Ambio is better than, uh, for most people will be a better experience than 95% of the theaters out there. So the thing, that's the, that's the real challenge. Sure. You can get it to a lot of screens right now, but will that last, um, you know, like if, if the writer's strike goes through the end of the year, uh, half the screens will go under, like in 2025, because they, because there won't be any movies. <laughs> you know, there won't, you know, there, you know, if, and, and then, and, and the, the problem is, is that the streamers are, are the ones that have to negotiate and they, they're going to, if the strike goes to the end of the year, they'll post record profits in the last quarter because they didn't do any production, but they just kept on getting subscriptions. Go ahead, Courtney. Half the television stations are going to go under because they depend on advertising. Without new television product, they can't sell ads on yeah. it. People aren't watching it. But oh, yeah. anyway, I think you're misdirecting the causation for the blockbuster with the format of the film. The The reason that uh, these uh, blockbuster films that are produced in 70 are popular is because only the directors with huge clout can insist on shooting in IMAX 70 or 70 millimeter right. Period, regular. And they, so you're only getting the top cream of the crop directors that want to mm -hmm. shoot there. That's why those films are popular, not because of the format, but because of the directors, not oh, because you're right. of the format. You're absolutely right. It's just that if you uh if you look at if you look at again an Oppenheimer as an example, you have you are you're hundred percent right that you you have about those that but they they got that clout by selling a lot of tickets. <laughs> you know, and so the and and so the thing is is that they um they, right, so but it's not of, because that they were producing stuff in seventy millimeters, because they were producing stuff with right. a good story and and no, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree with you. We're taking a little time, everyone. If the producers yeah, are we, wondering, we're, we're, no, no, we're taking a little time. We don't have a ton of questions on on the, on the hopper, so we, we can we can chew on this for a minute. Um, it's a good conversation. the the um, the The issue is is that now that seventy millimeter has done really well, what do you think the producers want to do or or directors want to do? to show that they have the clout, they're gonna all going to be asking for 70 millimeter. Like they're going to go, I want to do a set, like, you know, I want to do a 70 millimeter because I'm, I think that I'm the next Christopher Nolan or the next, you know, like I can do the next Dune or, or I can do the, you know, so they're going to, you know, this is going to be the new kind of 
um, measuring stick, you know, so to speak, of directors is having the clout to ask for a 70 millimeter film. And so the thing is, is that, that this is, you know, this is going to be, you know, and directors do this all the time. They want to be, they want to do the biggest thing. And now the cool thing on, on campus is seven, is 15 per 70 millimeter, you know, like, which we never thought would happen, but it's, but it's the cool thing on campus. And, and I think that you're going to see a, a harder push for those. And from a, Again, when you look at the individual, the the um, the the cost of the print is paid off in the first couple of days. If they had left, um, if they had left Oppenheimer in the fifteen seventy theaters for another month, they would have made millions and millions and millions of dollars on that on that you know there because it's it's just hard sold out. Um, you know, it's and so they could have added th- two, three, four weeks to their schedule. I think that what you're going to end up seeing is less films going through these really big theaters this, the, 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 and, and have them have longer runs um, because they're very, very um, unusual theaters, you know, to, to do that. And, and I think that, again, I think it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the viewers want to see it that way. But if you're making, if it's, if it's heavily, if it's making a, a 90% profit or a 80% profit, who cares? <laughs> like, like, you know, like, it's like, it's like, it's like, let's go ahead and do that. And so even after all the extra costs of producing, the, the cost of film and the cost of the cameras is really such a small number, like for a, for that kind of film, uh, compared to the actors, uh, the cost of the film and everything else is pretty, is pretty low, you know? So, so it's, it's, a uh, so I think, especially when you look at the actors that were in Oppenheimer, you know, that's, uh, the cost of the film is you know, maybe one or two percent of that, so it's it's really not not that big of a, a change for them to mechanically do it. It's it, it feels like a pain to us, but in reference to the entire production of the movie, it's just not that big of a number. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, we've talked about uh, the availability of seventy millimeter fifteen perf in uh, IMAX theaters, but what about equipment to shoot it? If if two people want to shoot. 70 millimeter at the same time, do we have enough gear to, uh, to outfit well, them? You have to remember that the, the, the shooting days are usually not that, I mean, they, they can't overlap or, or, or you just make more cameras. I mean, it's not like you can't make the cameras. Um, but I think that, again, I think that what you're going to see is, uh, over the next couple of years, you'll see us grow to probably three to five movies a year that are in 15 perf. Like, I think that over the next two or three years, it'll grow to that because that's the high ground. I mean, everything else, there's no reason to watch there's no reason to go to a 20 foot or 30 foot or 40 foot screen. Like there's just no reason to, you know, like a 40, 40 feet and below on a theater is not competitive with an 85 inch monitor and a good surround system at home. Like it's, it's just not. So the problem is, is that if you, if, so if you're, if you, if you're, and that's like 80% of the screens <laughs> that are out there are 40 feet or less. And so, so the, um, so the, you know, that's, that's the, the, the water is rising quickly on people not being willing to go in. Cause now they can get all those movies. I'm, I'm watching, uh, what am I watching? Uh, Hijack right now. Really well shot movie. I mean, Apple has all the money, <laughs> you know, but, but like, and, and the other thing is, is it's much longer. Like, I don't, I don't want to go see a two and a half minute, two and a half hour film very much anymore. I don't want to go to a three hour one in the theater either. Um, I, I, you know, I want to, I like being able to watch everything in 45 minute bites. I'm good, Courtney. Well, the, the infrastructure just isn't there for that, for your dream to happen. That's the problem is we've moved away from photochemical film processing. There's only two or three labs left in, in the world that can process that film and print it. And um, so uh, as we move to digital, the quality of digital gets better. It's We're just one step away of, of reproducing the quality of 1570 in digital 
So that We're makes pretty, more sense I, to it, be able to accommodate that rather than to go backwards in time to a technology of hundred years ago. Yeah, we're pretty far away. Forward in time to a technology that can can advance. Yeah, I, I mean, part of my job is to do delivery to theaters, and I got to say that uh, we're pretty far away from eighteen k. <laughs> like you know, like it's a yeah, but a it doesn't really do. make that much difference. Does it? Yeah, I, I have seen the tests. Yes. Yeah, it does I, not I, make I, that much difference. We'll, we'll the see. Resolution. I think we'll just not make that much difference. And there's a limitation. There, there's a physical limitation in in the production of film stock and the mm-hmm. grain size uh, <laughs> to be able to go much further to go any further. And you're already at the limit at. 1570. So, all right, we've, you're not going to expand any further. We'll, we'll see. So, we'll see how it goes. Next think, question. Uh, you still have to scan it in because 90% of every yeah. film's out there have visual effects. Yeah. Next question. And our next question is from Haken Force in Stockholm, Sweden. What is your thoughts on the future of live sports broadcasting? Will on location camera operators go away? Go, ahead, Chris. I won't say never, um, but you can't really. You can't really make an intelligent statement about this until you sit next to a live sports cameraman and watch them work. Uh, my favorite example is, I believe it's camera uh, one, which would be the high first camera in baseball. And if you watch somebody who knows what they're doing at that camera, um, it's like magic. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot of good things that you can pick up off the field from that position, but you always have to be ready if the pitcher is going to um, pick off the guy who's trying to lead off a first to steal second. So that shot always has to be there, but a good camera one operator in baseball is going to sell you a half a dozen other really great views of the stadium, but he always has to be back at that place. And you watch a guy with a manuals, uh, a manual zoom, which is, in my experience, what most people tend to use in sports, who knows what they're doing, and tell me a, a, a computer or somebody remotely operating it can do it. I mean, they can't. The, they the can't. big challenge they have to see around the lens. The big challenge is, is that for ninety five percent of the work, you can probably get AI to do it better. Um, you know, so the stuff you, what Chris is talking about is, you know, and you know, pro level baseball. Uh, football, soccer, basketball, hockey, those are all things that are not going to be replaced by AI anytime soon. Um, it's the, all the lower level stuff where you don't have a budget. You know, the budget for, um, you know... Curling. Uh, per, well, the, the budget for curling or the budget for like a Pac-12, um, you know, non-football, you know, event is, you know... Ten or fifteen thousand dollars, <laughs> like like it's not it's not that much. And Brand so the thing is, is chance. that is that the uh, so the the problem is at that point you can and the skills that the skill skill of the operators that are getting paid to be part of those, um, you know, th- there's a lot of things you could do with with computers to do that. The challenge really is is how do you end up with people at the top five percent when there's nowhere to learn? You know, like there's nowhere to um, be part of it. And what's going to happen is is people are going to have to go into a training me- training process that lasts a lot longer and, you know, they have to come out cooked, you know, and it's going to be harder to get into a lot of these things because the school will actually 
there won't be any on-the-job training because those jobs are taken by the AI. You'll have to be in training training, you know, to do that, like a doctor or something. You know, like it'll be, it's just going to be much harder. It's not, it's going to take time. Like these kind of jobs are going to be very hard to replace with computers for a while, but they will. And then that's the real challenge is training becomes super important because it might last a long time. We have to be very good at it because, you know, you will get better than the computer, but it will take, it'll be harder and harder to get better than the computer. Um, Next question. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, real quick. In the old days, talk about training. Uh, it's a good point, Alex. In the old days, the training path would be you'd start doing like jumbotron work at some of the bigger universities, and then yeah. you might get into the broadcast uh, or you know like local like campus broadcast. Then you do jumbotron at the at the big shows, you know, the big games, yeah. the pro, you know, and then maybe if the bookers the bookers who are hiring all the freelance crews to fill those positions right. liked you and you got along with people that you might get put into the truck to do one of the, the broadcasts. Yeah. And, and the, the challenge is that a lot of the lower level stuff could be done by a computer. And that's going to be hard because it's, a, it's the feeder. The training ground. Yeah, exactly. There's nowhere to, because you just need thousands of hours of doing it to get good. As good as the people you see on at the NFL or, or MB, MLB or whatever, to, to get as good as those folks takes 10 years, 15 years of you know, where you started in high school games or college games and moved moved your way up slowly of, of hard work talking to other people and, and really working at it. And only a tiny percentage make it. And so. the thing is, is you can, even if you do really, really well, you can absolutely deep six your career in one game. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're ever interested, I will tell you the story <laughs> okay. of why I don't do sports in a game yeah. anymore. <laughs> Next question. Next one in from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. More than other panelists, Alex's background has a squarish artifact. Is that the camera, video, pipeline, or YouTube? I don't know what that squarish... Do you guys see it? Do you guys see no, an artifact? I don't see it. Zoom? I have you blown up really big on a 5K display. You're just, your background looks great. Yeah. Josh, mm-hmm. has, Josh has it could to be, fix his computer. It could be in YouTube. Uh, it could be a YouTube compression artifact. So we should take a look at it. But I, don't, I, don't, I can't see it on mine because I see the uncompressed version on my thing. Uh, next question. Robert Green in Los Angeles. What are we looking forward to at the Sigraph Show next week in L.A.? Um, uh, go ahead, John. Jansen Huang's one of the keynote speakers, CEO of NVIDIA. They're just doing amazing, amazing work. Tons of generative AI stuff. I got to imagine. Hoping to see gingerbread from Adobe. That that would be that would be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I think ginger, I think gingerbread is something that a lot of us are really interested to see how far they went with 3D. Um, so how far are they going? But this is going to be their big. A lot of times it's new releases, so we'll be looking for uh, whether we see a release from Maxon, um, from Autodesk, from Houdini, you know, from Side Effects for Houdini. Those are all things that would be interesting for us to see as well. Um, see if there's any updates to Fusion um, as they relate to Resolve. So those are the kind of things I'm really interested in: motion capture, and you know, and. And character generation, so the the kind of the um, uh, meta meta human stuff is something I'm interested in. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, it's, it's John, the guy from Nvidia. You think Nvidia still has runway in terms of uh, like its growth potential? You're asking for stock tips, <laughs> maybe. I mean, it's it's forex in in value, mm. nearly forex in value since the beginning of I, us talking about ChatGPT. If I knew I that, office, I'd be a trillionaire. I'd I be think a trillionaire. office hours caused Nvidia to spike I, in the market. That's what I'm was, saying. It was really painful. I think I've told the story. I invested in a thing called Marketocracy where they give you fake money, a million dollars of fake money, and you put stuff into it. And in 2000, I put it into Apple, Adobe, 
ATI, NVIDIA, and one other one I can't think of right now. It'd be worth a hundred million dollars now. I was, I was yeah, like, you blew it. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Mitchell. I didn't. I didn't have a million dollars back then. I was. I, I was barely. I was almost homeless. Um, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Uh, looking forward to uh, see what uh, Maxon does with their plugins, uh, and of yeah. course to see how much deeper Adobe can go into unifying all of their products together. Uh, next question. Back on Forrest from Stockholm, Sweden, asking suggestions for rundown solutions on a budget. Google Sheets. So I have to say that the most popular one that we've seen is Google Sheets, <laughs> and, and there's run there's Rundown Creator uh, is one to you can you can look at, um, and there's also one um, Rundown Creator is the one I'm I'm most uh, uh, familiar with. I think Courtney has it up there, um, and so that one um, is. Uh, you know that that's one you can look at. I don't know what you're looking at for for a budget, but again, what we see the most often is still uh, Google Sheets because uh, everyone can edit it, everyone has it, everyone can jump into it. They don't have to learn. Rundown Creator is significantly better. Um, and Showflow is the other one. I think it's Show with F L F L O. Um, so Showflow and Rundown Creator are the two that you probably want to look at if you want more features than what you see with Google Sheets. But Google Sheets is probably still the most popular one. Uh, next question. Dave Kaufman, Vancouver, British Columbia. We used to think it was Hans Zimmer soundtracks, but Oppenheimer dialogue was unintelligible in the theater. Listen to 70 millimeter film and digital. Why is dialogue so much harder to hear in modern movies? My hearing is okay. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the this is the other competi- competitor to uh, theaters is that you know oftentimes now my family leaves captions on all the time and going to the theater is what means that they have to do something without captions i don't know if they're you know there's a lot of resistance there um it's because the, the director really wants you to be more immersed into the into the sound effects and so they push the they're, they're pushing the dialogue more into the bed and uh and to, to make it more immersive uh and it's a it's a it's a directoral choice and it makes it really hard to understand what people are saying at times now go ahead courtney yeah, I have this theory, and your kids may be proving out this theory to you, Alex, is that people that have, say they've had a little trouble and they turn on captions, and then they get used to using captions, they become dependent on them. And yeah. I have a friend who who will not watch TV without the captions turned on. Yeah, no, no, and that's, I asked that's him what's to, happening. And, and I think you can be, become totally dependent. Mm-hmm. Your brain starts translating, yep. and it can't really, it stops listening when it sees the captions. Yeah. So I, I think it's, and so you lose the ability to interpret audio sound if yep. you become dependent on captions. And so I think a lot of young people are doing that these days because they're used to watching stuff on their phones, and they don't want to have the sound mm-hmm. on yep. to disturb other I'm, people, so they have captioning on. Yep. So they become dependent on yeah. reading it instead of hearing it. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I'll go ahead, Mitchell, real quick. I have a uh, an issue with the way actors are also speaking nowadays. It seems like whispering it in, no, and it's very to be, hard to understand. Just want to feel more like you're there, you know, and, and not quite as projected. Uh, next question. Next question for Douglas Carmichael: How would a digital first director handle outputting their film to a fifteen seventy? Are there facilities that can do that? Yes, <laughs> it's a film printer. <laughs> so there's film printers, not very many of them, as Courtney has pointed out, but they exist. Uh, next question. John Fisher, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As industry insiders, where do you think we are on the bell curve of trying to turn films into cinematic universes? I don't, I don't really know exactly what that means. Um, so, but but I think that uh, you know, I think that what's going to be really interesting is to see what people do. If you're thinking about immersion. Um, I think that what we're going to probably see is some behind the scenes and some scenes. So um, there are. 
people have seen some of these R5Cs and and uh, and some of the um, a couple of the Raptors with with 180 lenses showing up on on film sets. I think what they're going to do is start showing you things where you're still going to watch it all in 16 by nine, but every once in a while you're going to get a glance of, you know, you can go to something and see something wider, or you can watch certain scenes or certain things happen in, in 180. The problem is most of the time there's nothing to see outside of the frame. It's like C stands and stuff like that. So, so that's you know it has to be very certain scenes that can be built that way. But I think that it's going to be. Uh, I think you're going to see more of that there. Next question from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. I'm admiring the John Preto set and image quality today. It has always been good, but extra good now. What changed? All right, go ahead. I'm going to skip this and go in a little out no, of no, order no. here. Oh, go ahead, John. I, oh, what, you can say something, Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Real what quick. Uh, what actually happened, uh, Kenny, is that Alex finally released a little budget that we could we could upgrade John's set. So we sent some people over, got a crew in there, did a little lighting tweaks, mm. and it was just great that Alex <laughs> would release that budget. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> go ahead, John. Alex yelled at me back in July and said, if you don't get your act together, you're going to get kicked off the panel. And so I, what, that's not true. But I was having a problem with tearing on my Brio. Yeah. And so I moved my Sony uh, Alpha, that's the Alpha 7.3 camera over here to my desk. And then I, I've always had this mount monitor in the background, but it was on this side. I just moved it over to this side. It looks very nice. And then I've got a Kino. I've got a 200 Diva on top of my head. Well, it, it's, it's a huge improvement. It's, it definitely looks great. Um, go ahead, Mitchell. Sony, no baloney. <laughs> All right, we are jumping into our second hour, uh, and uh, we are now going to be talking about raster versus vector. Um, so um, rasters and vectors are something that we, oftentimes those are terms that are kind of, and this is a basic, so many of you probably already know what they are, but we can talk about some of the efficiencies and so on and so forth of the two of them. Um, essentially, it is implicit versus explicit um, uh graphics and so uh your your ras your vectors and these vectors are related to you know your 3d models and many other things are implicit control which means that i don't actually a vector is not something that i am drawing every image every point so i'm saying i have um i have a that's no, bad color hold on i have a point here and i have a point here and then what i can do is using a calculation um i can say well i'm i'm gonna draw between these and over like this, and I might have another, you know, point over here that that is, you know, so I have these points here, and I'm drawing that line, but that line is a effect of those points. It is not a, um, it, it is not, I'm not drawing every little dot that goes along here. I'm only drawing the control points here. And the way that those control points are calculated can be a variety of different things. And so, for instance, um, to draw this line, you may have um, this is the control point here, but then I may have a, this, the most typical one that you use is a Bezier curve. So, you know, out of this control point, I might have um, a, a little, a little Bezier like this and another long Bezier like that. That's probably what that one would look like. And this one would probably look a little bit like this. And, and essentially this is the, um, uh, you know, this is what those, those would probably look like there. So these are the Bezier curves. This, this, this is an endpoint. Um, now, these curves, they're really just, they're just these curves here like this that you want to think of them as they're really cages. We just get rid of this part here. So that part there has been taken away. Um, and, um, and so we have, if we, uh, let me erase that a little bit here. So, um, and so the, if we put that back in here, so the, um, this cage, it basically is how we calculate this cage. 
Um, so by by moving this cage around and then and then translating it, that's what we that's what you kind of get there. So so anyway, um, uh, the again, if I if I go here and and um, so let's get rid of this here. So anyway, so so you have uh, that's so this is the this is the basic piece. Now this is how all of the vector graphics are created. The advantage of this is that the resolution, these final dots here that you see are being created right when you go to print, right when you go out to video, right when you go out. So no matter how close you get to it, it stays sharp. So it constantly is staying sharp no matter how um, how much you zoom it up. So you can build something that's the side of a building and it's going to remain sharp. Um, the hard part is, is that this doesn't work as well when every pixel is different. So the image behind me or or a photo photo or other things do not translate well to vector because they have to be described. You know, they have to be described. So every pixel is slightly different than the other one. That doesn't work for vectors. So typically what you see are vectors are, um, you know, things that are like logos and things that are, um, you know, you know, certain areas that want to be cleaner. Um, when things start to become more organic, then of course you need rasters to, you know, a raster, rasterized image or a raster image. Um, if you want to do pixel effects, so if we want to do layering, oftentimes we need to have, uh, eventually we can, there's some effects you can do with that with as a layer, but as you start to do pixel effects like blur, um, you know, those, those are what we would call, you know, a convolution kernel is, um, you know, essentially a convolution kernel is saying, I got a, I got a pixel here and what, what are the, what am I going to do in relationship to the pixels around me? Um, and that kernel and doing, you can't, you can do it as an effect, but it's, you're not really, you generally at some point have to start rasterizing it so that you can do those pixel by pixel, um, adjustments. So we, again, we keep a lot of our stuff in vector, um, uh, as long as we can, uh, if they're if they're clean graphics, um, and then convert them to raster. Now, rasters, of course, are our photos. Um, there are you know a lot of our effects that we do are all rasterized. At some point, everything becomes rastered. <laughs> you know, like it has to be. We have to know how to put it on a piece of paper. We have to know how to put it on a screen. We have to. So eventually, it's going to be rasterized on the way out. But it's um, but but it can start. And if you have something that's vector, oftentimes you want to keep it vector as long as you possibly can. Um, so that you can, uh, you know, constantly be changing that resolution. So um, when you save out to something like a, the the kind of file formats that you see that are vector are going to be uh, file formats like SVG, um, uh, EPS, dot, you know, AI, and you know, AI, the Adobe Illustrator, um, not not AI, artificial intelligence, but Adobe Illustrator. Um, so those are all things. Those are the type of um, graphic, you know, formats. SVG, EPS. And AI are probably the most popular um, uh, vector formats that you'll see floating around, and then um, and then of course all most of the other formats are all all raster based. A PDF can be a mixture of those things. So PDF can be both; they can have images in it, but it also if you have things that are in PostScript, PostScript is a vector. So when you think about PostScript or TrueType, all of your text generally is all vector, so it's all being calculated as a vector there. So those are the those are some of the things that. Um, that, that, you know, those are, the, those are how those things get translated. That's why it always looks sharp when you're printing out your PDF, uh, or zooming into it, but, it, and it's much lighter. Um, so typically you're going to have a, a much lighter, um, uh, a file when you're trying to describe it all as, as descriptions of those things, as opposed to every little pixel, because the problem is, is you're trying to, if you're trying to do every, if you rasterize that file, now you have to have a really high resolution for it to remain sharp. So, um, so the vector saves you a lot of a lot of trouble there. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, if you've been doing this stuff for a while, you remember the days where you know, like for example, in Photoshop, you didn't 
type words into a frame, you created shapes that looked very much like letters. And so a lot of times uh, we would make graphical elements um, much larger so that you could scale them down because you never wanted to had to you never wanted to have to scale something up because it would break apart. And so, like Alex was saying, I always tell people when you get when I get a um, a vector image like a logo or whatnot, it's infinitely scalable. I can put it on the on a business card, a letterhead, uh, you know, a fill up a wall, the side of a bus, or the side of a planet. It doesn't matter. It's always going to be sharp because it's just math. It's math that that scales it up. Um, learning that. I can remember, you know, I don't know, 30 plus years ago going, oh, <laughs> wow, this guy. This. And then and then the tools get more powerful and then it becomes uh, trivial to scale things around. Um, but it's a it's a real aha moment when you understand it. Yeah. And, and, and it's one of those things that we, we were talking about when we were talking about the second hours. And I was like, you know, this is something that a lot of folks here are going to know. And this may be a short hour because everyone's going to be like, well, I already know all this stuff. Um, but, uh, but, the, um, but at the same time, for the folks that haven't seen that, it's an important basic that you really have to know. And I find a remarkable number of people still have trouble with <laughs> figuring out what to do and when to do it. I mean, the bottom line is, is that, you know, if you're doing something that's rasterized um, from whatever resolution is at, you really can't scale it up. <laughs> like you can't go up. Um, there are tools that will make it slightly better, but it's not ever really going to turn out. Go ahead, Mitchell. I do a lot of motion graphics work and uh, invariably I'm handed a logo from a company. And in addition to wanting it to be a, uh, a vector based graphic, like an illustrator file or EPS or SVG, um, the thing we haven't talked about yet is that if you get it as a vector file and it's an illustrator, you may have layers now that you can deal with. And one of the cool things about animating any logo is that I like to start with a finished logo and decide how it's going to get to that point. And that means that I need to be able to pull all these different parts uh, uh, away from the logo in order to be able to animate them. And yes, the scaling is a great thing, but I love the layering ability. And of course, I'm heavily into the Adobe environment, uh, going between Illustrator and uh, After Effects is just very, very nice. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Mitchell, it'd be fun to do a lab or like a, maybe it's a second hour, I don't know, where we take, and, and this is just for corporate video. This is not, we're not talking about Christopher Nolan making IMAX movies or just crap corporate video where you learn how to pull assets in that you scavenge from a client uh, and then be able to tear them apart, make them into layers, animate them and stuff. What I was going to say is that the, um, the, uh, the, one of my biggest frustrations is when somebody gives you a, a logo and it's like a, a JPEG, it's like, I, I, I need this. I need this as an EPS file. They go, Oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. I'll get my guy on that. And then they send you the JPEG embedded into an EPS wrapper. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's not. This is, by the real. way, this is why we're uh, this is why we're having this hour. <laughs> so that nobody yeah, just, does that. Just because it says .eps doesn't mean it's it doesn't a vector mean. image. It's a and and we'll talk a little bit about some automatic conversion processes. But when you're really doing something high end, um, it is a skill that is uh, worth having. You know, like it's not it's not a um, because there's you know there, you don't. If you, if you looked at if I was tracing myself, this is gonna be really meta here for me to try to trace myself here, but. 
you know, one of the things that you're looking at is that, you know, you think you're going to put things on the corners here like this, but that's not the way you build this out. You know, you're, you're basically, you're setting your, your point here and your point here, and then, and then you're putting your, you know, moving these over so that you can explicitly control that or you know, implicitly control that edge. Um, and depending on the resolution, you know, this starts to turn into like, a, I got points here, you know, and they're all like these little points that go around that are, you know, Hold yeah, exactly. I got to stand still very still while I'm drawing. Now, do the hair. Do the hair. Draw the, the hair. Yeah, exactly. Make and then, the and, logo bigger. Yeah. So, but the um, but the the main thing is is that I it's a skill set that I uh, don't use as often as I used to. But one of the real powerful things was I had to outline one of my jobs when I was uh, in my early twenties was rebuilding our clients. Um, we I did a I did a um, for a while, I don't know how long, I don't think I did it very long, three or four months, I think. I was a, I was the production supervisor for the, I think it was a Colorado Horse News. <laughs> so it turned out, and I did, I did a horse, uh, I did a, it was a, you know, it was a newsletter or magazine. It was actually a magazine. We've, all, we've all had that job, Alex. It was good. It was, it was good though. I, it was all in cork. And, um, and I think what happened was, is they asked me to design something and I, they had had this horrible logo and I just, I, you know, I was a big Photoshop guy and I, I made their logo look like it was on burlap and it was all like, you know, really, you know, nice layered and everything else. And they were like, would you like to work on the magazine? And I didn't have enough work. So I was like, sure. You know, I had my, my morning, my morning was filled up by doing prime sports network, but my afternoon could be working on this magazine. And I learned how to do automatic flowing and everything else. But one of the big things is if you want to find a place, uh, you know, if you want to find a place where you're going to get a lot of logos that are not. EPS or .ai work for Colorado Horse News <laughs> because <laughs> because they're all like a picture or they send you they would just cut it out of of their card or they would cut it out of something and they just they just send you these pieces of paper and I'd scan them and I'd redraw them and I would re you know and and what was really interesting was is that at first that was a little rough but it, you get you get fast at it you know take you a half hour hour to to redo someone's logo. And then you would send it back to them and say, hey, you might want to keep this somewhere safe. You know, like this is a this is an outline of your logo. Um, and uh, it's a really great skill to have. Uh, and and you get fast at it uh, and you can look at something and go, OK, I can I can draw this out. Um, so it's it's a good skill. But there are programs. The automatic programs are never going to be as clean as someone doing it by hand that knows what they're doing. I've never seen an automatic program. Even we'll talk about Trace Journey, which is probably one of the better ones out there right now. Um, but they're never going to be as clean um, as someone just doing it. And where clean matters in, in you may have something that looks the same, but when you scale it up, you're going to start seeing little hooks, you know, things that are that are not quite right and edges that aren't quite have to. What happens is, is that, you know, you think about this curve that's here and here and here. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to build these teeters that are like this and they're, you know, like this. And then I'm going to draw this, this line that goes, you know, through here like this and, and around like that. The problem is, is you could build that with more, more of these. You could put points in here, like, and this is what an automatic system will do is put these little points in here. It'll put more of them in there because it's easier for it to manage. And at whatever that resolution is, it makes sense. But as it scales, you're going to start to see little ridges because it's scaling up and it's not, you know, the, this curve wants to be very efficient because the, every time you put a point there, it's going to create a corner at some point. I mean, at some, at some level, it's going to start creating hitches. Um, and other things you'll get are, you know, so, so the thing is, is that when you have, and when you have extra points and you scale them down, they might start running into each other. So there, it, 
it, it is being able to do this really cleanly is really important, um, you know, as, as a skill. Uh, it also means it, we don't have to worry about this any much anymore, but it used to be it would hit, it would create, it would, it would hang. If you had inefficient logos that were automatically traced by Adobe, by Illustrator, for instance, Illustrator has its own automatic tracing stuff. And it used to be a separate app. And I think they put it into Illustrator, I don't know, 15 years ago. <laughs> so, um, but I remember it being a separate app that Adobe had. And um, uh, the challenge there, I, now I think it might be 25 years ago that they incorporated it. <laughs> so anyway, the, um, uh, but the, the challenge is that it would hitch up the, the prepress. So when you sent it out to print and you had a whole bunch of stuff that was automatically, it was too complicated and it would actually, uh, you know, crash the, um, you know, crash the prepress. <laughs> so, so we, you know, you had to be very careful about how you sent those things out. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, to take it back to the origins, the, the difference between vector and raster came to came about because of the difference in uh, electronic displays. The original electronic displays were all vector-based. Uh, you may remember uh, remember going to the Tempest. arcade and, and playing Tempest or Tempest. Uh, Ast uh, Asteroids. One called Tomcat or yeah. Asteroids. Those were all vector displays, uh, which were stroke displays. So they, the uh, the game actually calculated the all the vectors, all the lines in there, and it used magnetic deflection to move an electron beam from one point to the other using the math. Uh, and, you know, it would draw, it wouldn't draw the screen. Which from made top it much lighter. Bottom. Right. Yeah. It, it made it much lighter data wise. So you could do fast moving displays very easily because uh, it had a lot less pixels to light up because it's just lighting up the pixels that are bright. It's not having to visit the pixels that are dark. Uh, so, and then when we uh, moved on to raster-based displays, which is television, is that anything with a uh, a raster that scans from top to bottom, where you have to light up all the pixels at once, and then to get computers moving into raster displays, television was analog, but uh, when computers started to do raster displays, they had to go between the uh, the the difference they had to assign a specific a specific color to each square pixel in that raster display and that's what caused the blockiness of the early raster displays we also all remember if you've ever uh done screen fonts uh that that's where you see a lot of difference between fonts these are the original screen fonts on most computers and you can see how blocky they are and when you scale them up uh, the blockiness becomes real, a real problem. And I remember having to design fonts for computers and you had eight blocks horizontally and 14 blocks vertically uh, to make a, uh, a character. And this became a problem actually in designing like the difference between a W and an H is only these two pixels here uh, that are across the cross member here, a capital W and a capital H. So, uh, when designing teleprompters, we had to use the original uh, character generators were these 8-bit graphics. And it was really hard to tell the difference between a W and an H. Uh, so people would misread words uh, if they're typed in all caps. So as we progressed, we learned to do anti-aliasing, which was a, a, a technique derived uh, to fool the eye into thinking that the diagonal lines, which were just block block, block diagonally, so that the jagged edge would be smoothed out by putting other pixels that are the same size and are the same shape, but a different uh, uh, exposure value, brightness value, that would trick the eye into thinking that, oh, it blends that uh, 
jagged edge into the different color by putting a pixel that is uh, a combination of those two colors along the edge, but halfway in between the two. So anti-aliasing was, is, was the big thing that, that uh, allowed raster images to be scaled up and uh, without seeing a lot of the jagginess along the edge. And it's much easier to, to convert a, uh, a vector to a raster than it is to convert a raster to a vector. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead, Jason. So uh, raster comes from Latin uh, for rake. And if you think about, a, you know, a picture, no matter how complicated it is, Fenwick's giving me a frown. I didn't make that up. Uh, it's a grid of pixels. No matter how it's compressed, no matter how cleverly it's, it's created, it is still finite and it is still significantly. Alex said that they were lighter, but uh, let me give you an example. Vector's lighter. <laughs> right. A vector is much lighter. So compared right. to... Um, you can create a, a vectorized drawing that is the size of a postage stamp and scale it to the size of the rose uh, bowl, you know, dome, and it's going to be the same size image. Like, just right. think about that for a second. Um, that, that is really the magic here. Also, um, I really learned that the gradients when you're using them... Um, when you're using them with, with vectors, it's just incredible. And the people that are really good with logos, it's kind of like, a, you know, you can tell the people that are good with Photoshop because they only have to touch it like twice. You can tell that somebody is really good at vectors when they're using like two or three control points. They've got this gorgeous, perfect, incredible, you know, symmetrical curve. That's right. uh, it's really a skill. And we're not talking about today, but if you, when you think about it in 3D, when you start talking about subdivision surfaces and NURBs and those types of, and, and those type B splines, those are all the same thing. I mean, they're the same type of calculations, just to add in another dimension. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. And first one in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What is the best way to convert a low quality raster image into a vector image for upsizing? Good, Chris. Can't hear you, Chris. Sorry about that. Hey, so I was just playing with this and uh, low quality. What I did is I took my camera shot um, right there and I ran in uh, Illustrator. I opened up an Illustrator. Illustrator calls it Image Trace. And uh, I was actually able to create the whole thing as a raster. I believe I can then ungroup bits of it. And I think that means, yes, I can now grab and pull parts of it away. Uh, so that's uh, that's one way. And can you zoom in on your face there? Oops. Yeah, uh, I can. Uh, let's see. Uh, I zoomed in on my selection. Give me a second. It's okay. Right. Yeah, because it has to start making decisions. Like it's starting it has to, to it, yeah, and it's you know there's a lot of great look at the uh, the gradient in the background over here, right? You know, but each one of these things is a separate thing, right? You know, it's crazy. Go ahead, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, as Courtney said earlier, it's much easier to go uh, from vector to raster than raster to vector because of all those artifacts, and it gets very complicated when you get a raster image trying to be a vector uh, because it's either going to posterize the, uh, the the object, like Chris posterized is a scary thought, um, or some other uh, issues will come up. I, I prefer just to use a uh, raster-based uh, um, amplification program uh, that does quadrilateral, binny-boomba uh, uh, 
cubic uh, interpretation. And uh, sometimes I get a better result from that. At least it's still a raster. At least it still looks organic. Yeah, the the um, uh, for a basic logo, the best way, the best way to do a basic logo is by hand. <laughs> like it's just to trace it. If you know, have a skilled operator trace it. And by the way, this is a excellent thing to use something like Fiverr for. I have found that there's it won't cost you $5. It'll cost you more. But you can send a, an image out to someone on Fiverr and for $35, $40, they'll send you back a pristine EPS. <laughs> like, and when I learned I could do that, you know, I don't know where they're, I don't know where they are. They're, you know, but they're, but wow, it's just, it's just perfect. And they, they obviously, this is all they do, you know, is, is just trace people's logos. Um, and, you know, they'll come back in great layers and, you know, everything else that's needed to be done. So they, that's, they a, seem to be able to simplify it and uh, make it instead of being more complicated. And that, well, that's where the skill well, comes in. The yeah. skill. But d- 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 so the easy, the best way to do it is have a person who knows what they're doing trace it. Like that is the best way to do it. Um, the the fastest way to do it is to use probably something like Illustrator's Trace. Um, the one that I've been playing with, with with a fair bit of success is Trace Journey. Uh, Trace Journey is like Mid Journey, except that it's Trace Journey, and I think you can even do Mid Journey uh, templates in it. But you can just drag an image into Trace Journey, the Trace Journey bot, like you'd have a Mid Journey bot, and say Trace that, and it'll create an SVG of it, and it does a Pretty good job. The big problem you get into with auto tracing is that they don't layer very well. You know, it's it's doing same thing with Chris's. It's like there's a whole bunch of little patches there, but you know, what do you do with that? <laughs> Other than having the image, if you ever want to manipulate it or move it or whatever, um, you know, it, it's not it's not a clean you know it's not a clean image and, because it doesn't know what it's looking at. Now, I think this will get a lot better. So when we watch something like Trace Journey get better, it's going to start knowing this is the foreground, this is the background, this is the text, this is the you know like it, it's it, you know these tools are going to get really good. So I do think that there is a future for you know, AI tracing that isn't quite here yet, but it's coming because this is definitely something that's very manual and eventually could figure out that Chris is, especially if you gave it an iPhone, you know, with depth information and handed it to it, its ability to build a trace out of that would be pretty, pretty high of understanding what the objects are. But right now, yeah, Chris can show you, Chris can, if we cut to Chris there for a second, you'll see this kind of, you know, it's, it's just kind this of a, is, a bit garbly gook. Yeah, you know, this of, is just madness. And, yeah. and and it doesn't help that I'm wearing a dark sweatshirt on a dark background. Right. right. Like yeah, the, so the, when I pick this thing over here, oh no, that actually didn't get any of my sweatshirt. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is but something I again, own. Whatever. It's it's, it's the, the auto tracing will get better, but today it's still better to do it yourself if you really want something you're going to use all the time, especially as a logo. Um, the other thing is, is that a lot of times, uh, one of the advantages of your vector, <laughs> <laughs> one of the advantages of your, uh, of, of a vector is you can also extrude it. So if you have a logo and you want to extrude it out into a 3D object, um, you know, break it apart. And a lot of times what we do is lo- someone will send us a logo and we'll grab different elements out of that logo. Um, we'll separate them all out into layers and then we'll take them into, I used to take into Pro Animator or Invigorator. Um, but you can do it in you know a variety of different apps now. You can even um, and, and you can extrude it. Um, you can extrude all of that out into a three D three D model. You can even one of the uses. Um, there's a limitation in um, there's a limitation in motion. Motion does text, you know. And one of the things that we started doing is using um, text creation tools or or you know um, topography tools to convert our logos to a to text, you know, so that A is a, you know, Acme logo and B is something else. 
and then you can, then you can bring it into motion and <laughs> extrude it out automatically uh, to have your your logos extruded out. So so those are but extrusion is necessary, and that's another thing that vectors are good for. And so we convert them, but they have to be clean. Otherwise, the three D models aren't going to come out clean. No, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the problem with doing what you asked for in the question is converting a low quality raster image into a vector image is a a raster to vector converter will do an uh, if it's good will do an accurate job of following every edge in that low quality raster so it will create vectors that are blocky you know they go across here and down here and across here and down here and across here and down here rather than drawing a single vector line to indicate a diagonal uh, so, uh, and then, then when you upsize it, it'll look just as bad or probably worse than just upscaling the original uh, raster. Uh, one way to avoid all this is to just have a, uh, a, a image that only has squares in it that has no diagonals and no curves. Like if I scale this, uh, if I scale this color bars up, I can scale it up in any dimension and you don't see any artifacts, even though that's originally just a bitmap because of course all the uh, pixels are being just multiplied. And uh, when you scale or multiply them, the edges are always the edges, vertical and horizontal, because the pixels are square and the lines are square. So as long as the lines line up with the pixel edges, you don't have a problem with scaling. It's when you get diagonals and curves that the problems exist. Yeah, one of the things that we've done to, fa to sometimes handle that is to scale the image up a lot blur it just a little bit and then scale it back down again. You may lose some resolution around the corners that you might have to fix, but if you want to scan it or, or have it, that, that's one way sometimes to fix some of it. It doesn't, it does, it's not a perfect solution, but it's better than blocks. Next question. Next question from David Brady in New York, New York. I use Pixelmator Pro instead of Photoshop and Illustrator as it handles both well enough for my needs. Prove me wrong. If it works well enough for your needs, then keep using it. Um, you know, I think that it's, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I think that, again, like the Trace Journey bot and a lot of these other ones um, are um, definitely there. I, I think that when I go uh, Pixelmator Pro um, and I use Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer, uh, which are very similar to Pixelmator Pro, I have Pixelmator Pro as well. I think that the, the big reason that I end up going back to Photoshop, well, other than the generative AI in, in the beta, but the older Photoshop is mostly because I've been using Photoshop since 1981. <laughs> you know, and so I, it's, it, you know, I just know how to do the operation really quickly. So usually when I go back, I feel like I probably could have done this in Affinity or Pixelmator. I just don't know how, you know, and I just go back to it. And I try to keep on forcing myself to do as many. They're, they're, the interfaces are a little quirky, um, but I think if you get used to it, you can. The big missing piece, which is not really part of this discussion, for Pixelmator and Affinity is no alpha channels. Like you can't, you don't have explicit alpha channels and it tries me like as a Photoshop user, no alpha channels is really difficult. Like not being able to stack up alpha channels and be able to use those and explicitly manage those is really difficult. <laughs> you know, so they, um, and that's been the thing that, that's the number one thing that gets, gets me back to Photoshop is I need to do something that's, an, that's a channel operation. Uh, next question. From Javier Alfaro in Mexico City, Mexico, is there an AI service that directly creates vector images? Or what is your preferred workflow to generate vector images using AI prompts? Go ahead, John. Yeah, Adobe's already announced text to vector as part of Firefly. It's not released yet. It's an alpha. Hopefully they show it at SIDGRAP, but it will be it will be part of the Adobe suite. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, are 2D vector graphics sometimes used as a guide for 3D artists 
to extrude and create 3D objects. And we talked about that a little bit in passing, but absolutely. We probably do a whole second hour on extruding um, and, and things to think about. That's probably a great topic for a Tuesday is extruding 3D, um, you know, building 3D graphics from text and from logos and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that, you, you know, we absolutely, um, that's what you need to take a logo out is, and preferably a logo that is well built in, uh, you know, it's got good layering, you know, so that all the different elements that you want, that's usually the first thing that you do is you open it up in Illustrator, you open it up in Designer, you open it up in Photomator or Pixelmator, sorry. Um, and, uh, and you get all the layers exact. I want this layer and then this layer and then this layer. And I want to control these bits and pieces. And then you um, take it in and you start extruding the pieces one at a time. Yeah, you know, go ahead, Mitchell. Type is a good example. I like to set type in Illustrator. I'm a little old fashioned that way. And then all you have to do is copy it and uh, paste it inside of After Effects and mm -hmm. uh, apply. Uh, in, uh, there's a, a 3D program, Element 3D, uh, that will instantly take that information and put it into a, uh, a mask and allow it to be 3D um, animated. Also, you mentioned Invigorator, uh, Zach Stow's great program. Uh, really cool vector uh, graphics, especially if you're dealing with type. Um, has a huge number of examples and colors, and just a quick way to get stuff done. Good, Courtney. Well, all computer-aided design programs like AutoCAD and Tinkercad and anything designed to create a 3D object like a building or an, you know, any, any product or object or case for something is all in vector. Uh, you see it on a raster display, so it, it rasterizes those vectors for the display. That's part of the display. Uh, the display driver for that particular uh, uh, program. But uh, all of uh, CAD programs, because they have to be very precise down to a thousandth of a millimeter, you know, if you if they worked in, in raster, uh, they wouldn't be very accurate if you scaled it up to the size of a building. You'd have jagged edges on your doors and things. So uh, they all work in vector graphics to begin with. Yeah. So Adobe Illustrator and AutoCAD, any of the CAD programs are all vector-based uh, yep. design programs and that start the, with primitives, you know. Yeah, one of the tricks um, to extruding logos and text that the, that the programs that are specifically designed for it is corners. So corners are really tricky um, and, and especially, you know, very, con you know, um, uh, convex corners are very, can be very, very, like if it's a hard edge, how do you count? The, the thing that really sets things apart is you can extrude those straight out and that's fine. But as you start adding rounding to them or bevels, how does it calculate those corners becomes a, that's the the real, where, where a good extruder is, you know, sets itself apart is managing those, those areas that are extruded and then rounded. Um, go ahead, Jason. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I, I just decided I, I wanted to see how far I could push this just with white and gray. So, um, took, took my logo and, um, and did nothing but, you know, mixes of whites and, you know, extrude, extrude, smooth, extrude, smooth, extrude, smooth. And uh, before I do it, like I, I had this insanely large thing in Photoshop, but in Illustrator, it was like five megabytes and that, right. that can infinitely scale. And yeah, corners and, and round things are really tricky. Hey, go ahead, Chris. Mitchell, uh, Mitchell, did you say you could copy your layer of text out of Illustrator and paste it into After Effects? Absolutely. You can do it as a, a layer or as a mask. It, uh, it takes that right Is off it the still clipboard. editable? Or is um, it you can edit back. Uh, uh, yeah, you can. You can. You can. Um, you can convert to uh, 
uh, to splines and do a little work within it. So, yes. Okay. <clears throat> so what I usually do when I'm doing that, sorry, this little tutorial here, is I, I would actually just create a graphic, uh, a file that is that I can always go back to place that into Illustrator uh, After Effects so that if I go edit the file, that change will ripple all the way through. That's true. Yep, absolutely. Uh, that Because I'm always dealing with people that are changing their minds. <laughs> Exactly. And that was one of the big, big things with with uh, do, uh, with Pro Animator from Zach's DAO, from um, uh, Zach's Works, was you give it all those layers and it would just automatically just build you a bunch of layers and you could really quickly move them all in and out. I mean, it's it was a pretty magic, it still is a pretty magical piece of software. Next question. Dave Kaufman from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The trend over time has been to defer rendering vector graphics to raster as late as possible. Can you imagine broadcast ever sending raster and vector together? Go ahead, Mitchell. I don't think it's necessary because that little thing called aliasing uh, works fine uh, with uh, the uh, the rastering. I mean, in the early days of broadcast with standard def, um, there were a lot of tricks for type, for example, uh, to make it not fall apart and get uh, ratty. I mean, Chiron Corporation did a lot of interesting things with shadows and doubling up uh, backgrounds, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's so much of an issue anymore. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, back when uh, images were drawn on a CRT with a, an electron beam, uh, where it's just a, a one-dimensional beam, you know, it's, it's a dot that's drawing it. In fact, that oscilloscope that is over Alex's right shoulder is a dual beam oscilloscope, and it's one of the very rare ones. Uh, uh, former former product, former formerly residing in my shop, uh, and it it actually displays two. Uh, vector displays on top of each other because it has two electron guns at the back that generate two independently scanned beams. So uh, it could be done in mixing, I don't know if you mix raster and vector, but at least mixing two vectors was possible. Yeah, and you do see that. So if you're seeing Unreal Engine being used or or you're seeing the some of the ROS graphics that do the AR you're, you're seeing basically vectors right up until the last minute. Um, and, uh, and then they're being uh, rendered, you know, in real time. So any kind of real-time renderer is taking vector graphics. Uh, VizRT is another solution that will do that where, uh, and Chiron has its own version of that. But, but basically, that's all 3D and that's all, it is all uh, vector graphics just in 3D that are converted right at the very moment that they're being generated. And so they're being rendered in real time. So Unreal Engine is doing exactly what you're talking about. The challenge that you see there is that they're rendering at the resolution of the screen oftentimes because that's what the hardware is. And so they can't anti-alias it or that, you know, anti-aliasing from 3D typically comes from oversampling. So basically what you do is you, if you need a 1080, you render at 4K or 8K, and then you and then you scale it down, and using the bicubic inter, inter, interpolation, it will just soften those edges and create the grays that that um, that Courtney's talking about. And so those little grays are created automatically from the oversampling because I'm going from a large image to a small image, and I those grays just get built automatically through bicubic uh, interpolation or some other version of interpolation, but bicubic is the most common. Um, and so. Um, the only time you can you can hang on to those aliases if you really want them by using nearest neighbor. And so so anyway, so that's the um, uh, that's how those those calculations end. So it, it is being used right now um, in, in areas. But you, oftentimes you can see it because if I see real time graphics with Unreal, I often look for the 
I look at all the curved edges and I look at all the angled edges and I see if I see aliasing going on, which you usually see just a little, a little of right now. Um, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asked, what resolution should you rasterize to for the best looking curves in 4K video? When is it not worth using the extra pixels? I mean, if you know, if I was going to rasterize to that, usually what I'll do is I'll rasterize at four times the resolution, and then I will scale it down. Now, sometimes I'll scale it down to use it. So if I'm going to create the raster, I create higher. I'll tell you the little trick is that if you go up to four times the resolution of whatever you're going to output, when you scale it down and you play with the interpolation of how it's being scaled by cubic or you know a variety of the other ones, you you get this. Um, it's hard to describe, but it feels like print. It just feel it has a th more the the anti aliasing becomes very very high quality, and it feels heavier than than when you use it with a direct um, you know pixel for pixel conversion. And they you know a lot of times Photoshop will have smoother or sharper or and it's doing what I'm talking about. It's oversampling it and then bringing it back down automatically. But but what I like to do is do it myself. So I'll I'll put out an image really, really big, and then I'll scale it down. Now, sometimes I'll save it that way, but you'll find that the anti-aliasing that's created from that, um, if you're going to that raster, oftentimes looks, um, it's 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 kind of hard to put your finger on, but it just has a really, really nice edge that feels very physical. Um, next question. From Michael Graves in Houston, Texas, what is the modern day equivalent of Adobe Streamline? It was ages old tool for making a vector from a raster image. Illustrator. <laughs> Illustrator is the modern stream. That's the that's the app I was trying to remember. I was like, there was there was an app that used to be out, and and uh, it was and it was Streamline was what Adobe made that eventually wrapped into just got incorporated into Illustrator. So yeah, Illustrator is a replacement for that. Uh, next question from Kent King in Charlotte, North Carolina. We do a bunch of color matching for logos and have relied on Pantone for twenty five plus years. But we've heard rumors Adobe is no longer going to support Pantone. Have you guys heard anything? Yeah, I have. I have heard. So Pantone is increasing their uh, the licensing. <laughs> so so Pantone wants more money for their colors, and um, there is a uh, rumor that Adobe is going to um, uh, not not relicense it, not re up it, and build their own, or use something else. And, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that that little fight goes. Pantone is so, so Pantone is not really an illustrator um, thing or, or a vector versus raster, but it's a color management process so that you knew what that color is. And so it was, so there's, the, the, you literally have these little uh, pieces of paper and, and, and you'd open them up and you say the Pantone, you know, G8364 or whatever is this it's a swatch book, swatch, swatch book. book. Yeah, swatch. And so you'd have these swatches and you'd, you'd make decisions based on those. But it meant that, you know, if you have a managed, a managed printing pipeline, if you put that Pantone in on Photoshop, it was going to come out the other end. And in Illustrator, you know, a lot of times what we would get is logos and those logos say, you know, this, this red is Pantone this and this, and it was just a way that we always knew that, that we're using the right color that's being managed in a managed color pipeline. We're using the right color to come out the other end correctly. If everyone's got, everyone's following the same set of rules, you're going to get the color that you expect. Uh, Pantone, I think, feels like they've cornered that market and I think they need more money. <laughs> so they have upped the, the licensing and um, a lot of people are pulling pulling back a little bit. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yeah, I don't stay in the Pantone workflow because if client gives me and says, this must be Pantone 256, um, I'll take it, then convert it to uh, RGB or whatever right. else I'm working with. And Pantone has really been for the old pre-flighting for print work, doing less and less print, more and more graphics. So uh, it, for me, it's not a problem if they if they get rid of them. Yeah, it, it's just always been something that's a, it's a known quantity for everybody. And, and as uh, you know, and, and it's... People still printing stuff, and, and again, it's it's a hard one to move away from. But it does sound like a couple folks are. Um, this 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 happened a couple months ago, I think that that they started the Pantone started talking about higher licensing fees, and um, that's the but that's what's kind of pushing this this forward. Uh, next question, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asks: Is Snow White rasterized and Toy Story vectorized? Will today's gaming kids prefer the vectorized animations of their youth? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I don't know about the preferences. Well, you know, Snow White was hand-drawn, so it's uh, the, the original analogs. So there was no uh, raster or vector involved, no math normally, unless they use a protractor to design some curves or something when they drew it. And it was hand-painted, so uh, all the edges had to do with brush strokes <laughs> than uh, uh, ink strokes on the cells than uh, Toy Story. Toy, Toy Story worked with a vector-generated uh uh, uh, characters that were then rasterized uh, and painted uh, as they, you know, lit them and painted them in the in the final version at the resolution that they were going to release it at. But it, it was Toy Story is also vectorized, but uh, uh, it's not as analog. Although they do, I guess you could say it's kind of analog because they're drawing on tablets, which is taking the the stroke of the artist are the pencil sketches of the artist and then converting it to vectors and then rendering it uh, to rest. Yeah, the uh, I, I just saw recently that someone took um, AI and they analyzed and they did their, they did a whole episode of South Park without any without any editing. They literally just gave it to the AI. It wrote it, it animated it, it edited it, everything else. It wasn't very good. <laughs> like they said, it's just as good as a South Park. And I was like, ah, is it? Is it? But uh, you know, you, you are going to see some uh, some more vector based stuff like that related to AI as well. Next question: Kent King in Charlotte, North Carolina, asks, "What's the preferred Illustrator file format now? It was EPS, but now Mac OS no longer shows a preview in the Finder. Looking for best option that works from simple to complex vector art, retaining Pantone spot colors when placed in other apps." Good, Mitchell. Um, I, um, I work on Macs uh, if I'm doing any design work and uh, illyfiles.il or whatever. Um, they seem to work the best. Um, I don't generally go to EPS. And if I do, you have to be careful of what version of Illustrator it's generated for. Because I think the, uh, uh, the standard that everybody can still receive is Illustrator 5. I think that's the one if you want to be very compatible I think it's six. I think it might the, be six, yeah. but now I'm, you know, kind of been doing this a long time, so five seems to stick in my head. Right. But um, it, it, I just just find that I can get all those previews and nice things, and uh, uh, even if you're going over to EPS, it still will bring over the uh, the proper color uh, balance if you're going to uh, R- sRGB or seven hundred nine or whatever the case may be, or Pantone even. Yeah, I mean. I now export everything out in four formats. So, and, and I have to look, I haven't really tried the Pantone one with SVG, but so I'm exporting, if I'm doing something in Illustrator, I'm going to export an Illustrator file, an EPS file, version six. Um, I'm going to e- export an SVG file and a PDF. And so those are the four that I'm going to, I'm going to output and I'm going to put them in a little folder 
and and that means that I don't and you you know um, and usually I put out a TIFF file you know that, that's going to be there, but the but the idea is I just want to put out a little folder that has all those those pieces in it because I don't know where it's going to go. I think SVG is kind of the heir apparent. Um, that's what you know. Um, there's more and more support for. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, EPS uh, Acrobat is probably a program that you could use to rasterize most of those uh, vector-based uh, files because it's used to doing it. There used to be uh, Windows. In the Windows world, we used to have Windows Metafile format, which was a vector-based file format. But they deprecated that about 10 or 15 years ago. And now if you try and find, try and find a program that can load a Windows Metafile, uh, WMF file, which was the file extension, yeah. it's really, really hard to find something that will even display those these days. Well, there was a lot of clip art that was done in Windows Metafile because it could be scaled infinitely and printed out on high-resolution printers without uh, artifacts. But it is no more. Adobe kind of took over that market yep. with the AI. Yeah, so I think, I mean, uh, the yeah, that, the AI file, .ai, I think is going to, Adobe, as Adobe goes more into into AI, I wonder, you wonder if they're going to change that suffix. Um, anyway, but, um, but I, I felt like Apple showed their cards a little bit when they released support for SVG for Keynote. So the last version of Keynote, you know, um, now supports SVG. So I think that you're going to see Apple um, kind of move towards, that's where there's a lot of support um, for those things. But you can see it in PDF. And PDF, Typically, can be opened back in a, in a, I believe, in an Illustrator file with all the bits and pieces still left in there. But I usually, again, I save them out as all of them because I just don't know. And I, I know I'm creating them right now. And by what I don't want someone to do is convert my file. <laughs> you know, so I want to go. I've created a source, and I want to give the client or the pro, the project here are the different versions that you could use. Um, that are all if you're if that's what you want. And I've opened them and looked at them and made sure that they're what that what I want them to be. Uh, next question. And it's for Douglas Carmichael asking, I remember back in the day when printing to a PostScript NEC silent writer printer, Mac OS 6 said, quote, a bitmap version of the font Los Angeles is being downloaded. Please wait, unquote. Is that a vector font converted to a raster font? Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, what you're describing in the old days, uh, if you had a PostScript uh, uh, printer, you had to rip Basically, what that means is that there were two fonts that were uh, being looked at. One is the, the screen font, which was bitmapped, and then there was the postscript font. And the ripper had to get the postscript into a raster version in order to print it. Um, and uh, I, I think that's the way it worked. It's been so very, very long. Uh, nowadays, TrueType and other types of fonts, it's all embedded in the same thing. Next question. Next question from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What is the replacement app for live type? Is there an animated typeface, typeface generator app? Motion. <laughs> so motion, it, it is uh, when li as live type, uh, the, it was a titler. Um, and um, I think that I'm look, I was looking up here. I, I, I remember it being called India, uh, called India Titler Pro. Um, but uh, but when as motion came out, um, it was uh, live type. All the tools, pretty much all the tools are, I think, that you saw with live type should be available inside of Motion. Um, next question. From Douglas Carmichael, is vector illustration a solid precursor skill for learning 3D modeling? Good, Mitchell. I would say no, because uh, you can do a lot of that type of modeling inside most of the 3D programs out there, like uh, Cinema 4D. You can uh, do quite a bit of uh animation, typesetting, things like that. It doesn't require that you start in Illustrator to get it there. So less and less. 
Yeah, I would um, I would say that understanding how vectors work in a 2D environment is very valuable, you know, and then you can, you'll still add those, but understanding how they're working and then it just goes to 3D. I, I still, there are so many things that I still use my skill, that skill set that I learned 30 years ago. Um, I would, I would highly recommend, I mean, a great thing to do if you're just trying to train is to trace some logos or trace some things and figure those out. Um, you know, there's a lot of, um, when I work with artists that are newer, that didn't do the kind of the hard work that a lot of folks did, you do find that they get limited and they do really weird things because they can't, they don't understand how to do that basic thing. I mean, this, this is in many industries when someone comes in without a lot of the, you know, uh, more constrained resources um, is, is that they, they don't know how to do the things that, that the, the old fogies like us know how to do. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that there is a, um, there's a real value to, uh, understanding. I think being able to trace with beast blinds is something, it doesn't, some, you don't have to spend years doing it, but a couple weeks of doing it is probably useful. Uh, you know, a couple hours a day for a couple weeks was probably watching it and studying it a little bit is a, is a worthwhile skill. Next question. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma asks, do you only import vectors into Keynote as SVG files? Back in the day, um, a couple when I say back in the day, a couple years ago, there was this weird little app that someone wrote, and you always felt like, is this really going to take over my computer and you know, like you know, ruin it or something like that? But there was a weird little open source app that someone wrote that would convert Illustrator files uh, into uh, shapes. You know, it would it would create a Keynote file with the shape in it. And so we used to move things that way um, over, and it was really painful. And you always wondered who was gonna who was gonna keep updating this program. And it was just someone's hobby that they posted. Um, and now that SVGs are out, that's the way to bring it in. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, the app was called AI Two Key. All right, yeah. AI the number two, and then Key. And it was just a lifesaver for those of us that love Keynote. And um, yeah, I, I hope he has a happy retirement because um, it served its purpose. <laughs> I, I think, I, you know, it was, I think it was free. I think it was just like he does whatever he's oh, doing totally and, he, and he just threw it up there for people to use. And it was super useful. I cannot believe it took Apple this long to get a way to bring in shapes. Um, the advantage of shapes. So people will go, well, you could have bought a PDF in or EPS before that. And that's true. But Apple didn't treat it as a um, shape. And so the advantage of treating it like a shape is that you can now do fill colors. You know, so if you brought in an EPS file, it would just be there. But you can't say fill that with blue or fill that with red. So if you're working on something, you couldn't do anything with it. It was still sharp, infinitely scalable. So it did have all those tools, but it wasn't treated as a shape and you couldn't put it in your shape library. So like in my keynote, I have all these shapes that I would import. I, you know, I have like, there's a satellite truck and there's, a, and there's a satellite and there's a, and I bought those, you know, on, I don't know, iStock or whatever. And then I import them all into, I am using a, the um, AI to key. I brought those all in as shapes and then I put them into my, my shapes inside of Illustrator, or inside of Keynote so I can just go grab them. But I can also change their colors so they match whatever the presentation I have is. Now I can do that with SVG and it's useful. Uh, next question. From Neil Avelado in Boca Raton, Florida. May you explain how to use motion to create the countdown clock? I've done that in the past. I don't know if I can explain it in, well, we don't have that, we have time. Um, but let's uh, let's see if we can come back. Um, 
uh, we'll go to Dave Kaufman and I'll try to open up motion. We'll see if we can't figure this out if we'll spend the last couple minutes doing this. Um, anyway, uh, go ahead. Uh, next question. Dave Kaufman, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. If this is really a cage match of Vector versus Raster, it looks like Raster is the king with several billion Raster cameras and displays and Vector as the only way to create and transfer graphics. Go ahead, Mitchell. I, I don't know. It depends. I mean, on the on the on your application and your workflow, everything starts to me in vectors. I mean, ninety nine percent of the time. So I wouldn't call it a king in that instance. But once it goes out to broadcast, of course, it's uh, raster is the way to go, and that makes it, I guess, the king. Go ahead, Courtney. Unless, of course, you're talking to talking about laser displays. If you're using lasers to draw images on the side of a building or something, they may still operate in vector graphics because they can give a brighter image uh, faster uh, by just using uh, vector XY deflection and a galvanometer, which is two little mirrors at uh, right angles to each other that control the horizontal and vertical deflection of that laser beam. So uh, depends on the display, but since we move to discrete pixel displays, in other words, LCD displays where each pixel instead of uh, I, a scanned electron beam determining the resolution, which was really infinite, to fixed pixel size, which is what we have on all our displays these days with LCD and plasma and everything else that is individual pixels, a certain count of pixels per horizontal line and certain per vertical line. Uh, everything pretty much has to be converted to uh, raster to display these days. So. Although you may design in vector, you're going to end up in raster eventually, unless you're projecting lasers on the side of a building. All right, we're going to see if we can do this in five minutes, and we'll see if, if I can if I can actually pull this off here. So let's. Um, I'm going to go ahead to let's see. Um, let's make sure. Here's where the real cage match begins. Yeah, exactly. So here's Lindsay versus five minutes to explain something complex. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm going to take this object. I'm going to go into generators. I'm going to go into uh, text generator, and I'm going to go into time code. Um, so here's my time code here. I can go over to inspector, uh, properties, I'm actually not, um, actually text generator, uh, format, and I'm going to make it, um, I can go into the appearance here, oops, format. Usually I practice this and so it looks a little better, so I'll make it a little bit bigger. Um, and then uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, there's a couple things that you want to do with these. You want to set it to monospace so it doesn't bounce around. And then you're going to, that's going to spread out. So then you're going to pull that back in. That way they don't move around. They stay in the same spacing. Um, you go back to the generator and you turn off uh, current time code um, so that you can you can set it um, where you want it. So this is, uh, let's see, this is this is five five seconds long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to set this to five and it might be a little inaccurate, but we'll just set it here. I set a, a keyframe and I go to here and I set this to zero. And then I, so now you can see it there. So now I have a keyframe. So now you'll see that countdown clock, you know, moving. Now it's got the extra frames. We'll deal with that in a second. So now I have the countdown clock itself that's there. Um, I can go back to the format. And I can say, this is, you know, I can change this. Now it's going to, I'll have to change all that tracking every time I do this, but this is a aerial round, just kind of cute. So we'll, um, we'll leave it there. So now it's counting down. Um, I can also inside of here, um, if I go into the appearance, um, I can, and I can also play with, let's see if I can go in here and aerial round, regular, that's all I have access to. So I'll go to appearance. I can also say I want 3D text. So there's my 3D text. So now it doesn't look like much here. But if I go to multiple here, um, it will, 
Um, then I go back to single. <laughs> I go to multiple. There's a display error here um, that, I've, that I've run into for some reason here. Uh, let's see. It should when I have multiple here. This is a new, uh, let's see. Maybe turn this off and then on. There we go. There's a weird display error that I found there. Um, anyway, so now I can go in here and say I want the front bevel to be something else. So I might say I want it to be uh, metal, uh, gold. So here you can see now. So now I've got this and I can still, you know, and I can decide how deep I want to make it, you know, there. Um, I can go back into the format and make this still, this text even bigger. Um, and remember, it's in 3D text, but it's still all, you know, still counting down, you know. So now the other part that you want to get rid of is that. Now you go up to the group and you say, I want to build a, um, a mask. So you'll say, I'll do a rectangular mask. And then I'm just going to draw this mask over to here. And now I have, now you want to go through it to make sure it doesn't show up anywhere. But there's your, there's your countdown clock. And so that's the, um, and now you can layer that, move that around and layer it to whatever, over top of whatever you want. And you still have a lot of control. You might have to make some fine adjustments to things if you make, if you change what text it is. So you usually want to figure that out first. Um, but I build, you know, I build a lot of those. <laughs> so obviously. But wouldn't you say that's that technically not vector or raster, it's programmatic in terms of what you're uh, laying it's a 3D. out? It's, it's vector because it's a, it's a 3, 3D vector, um, you know, there. It started off with a vector. The only reason I can extrude it like that. And again, that, you know, so that's the, but that's how I build countdown clocks. And so I um, get the client's font. I put it in there. Um, I may make it 3D, usually not. Um, and then I can build that really quickly with that keyframes. I literally think that, $50 for motion one time ever, like you pay $50 and they just keep upgrading it, is worth it just to build countdown clocks because I build a lot of them. And so um, so anyway, that's the, uh, uh, but that's how I build countdown clocks in motion. And it, you can do the same thing. You can do it in Illustrator. It's a little more cumbersome last time I used I used to do all of them in Illustrator. I'm not Illustrator. I used to do them all after in effects, After Effects. Yeah. And when I figured out this, it was funny. I was I was trying to figure this out and I was doing something convoluted, like I was rendering it out and then reversing it and everything else. I was talking to Mark Spencer and he's like, why don't you just set the keyframes for the key for the time for the time? And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was possible. So anyway, that's how you build those. Uh, it'd be great if, if Apple uh, let, got rid of those two ends so I didn't have to build a weird mask, but um, it seems like it would be one more thing to do. Anyway, thank you so much to the uh, panelists for the great conversation. Uh, got us through the first hour and the second hour. Good conversation. I, 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 I sometimes create these basics. And I'm like, I don't know if we're going to get through a whole hour, um, but this, but, uh, but we did. And it was a good conversation. A great, great roundtable. Some historical um, stuff mixed in with some technical. It was good. Um, and uh, and thanks to the uh, to our um, of course to our producers who are asking all the great questions, um, making this uh, possible every single day. Um, and uh, we can't can't do this without your questions. And so uh, get them in early. Uh, we we sound. I like to sound smarter. That's the big thing. It's 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 really. Um, and so we sound smarter when you put those questions in a little bit earlier because it gives us some time to see them. But but definitely feel free to keep on adding them during the hour as well, especially in the second hour. It's, it's good because you're reacting to what we're talking about there. Um, and then, of course, thanks to the incredible crew, the planning crew, the, the tech, the, the development crew, um, the production crew that is all making this possible every single day. This little village that shows up. It's so nice to see everybody. There's all there's whole, for those of you watching, there's this whole crew that's working on the pre-show and you walk in, they, they're making sure that your audio is good and your comms work and then you've got all your stuff where they need to be um, and uh, and so it's, uh, it's it's really fun to see everybody there 
Um, it's just a, it's quite a system. So anyway, thank you all for the contribution that you, that you give, that you make for the show. The show happens because we make it happen as a group together, which is kind of an amazing thing. Uh, we traveled uh, 58,000 uh, miles, 94,000 kilometers, and that is 466 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. very nervous about trying to do the thing live <laughs> it's like i was like this is a bad idea i'm gonna do it anyway i'm gonna this do it anyway. bad idea i think we i'll do always, it you can always clip the end of the show <laughs> uh, don't <laughs> don't forget to join us for the show workshop today at uh, oh, yeah. 12 pacific and 3 pacific. eastern yes, yes. Vector, vector. after hours oh and josh put it in there and i just skipped over i was i was quickly What's looking the vector for vector? The what's the vector roger vector? dodger hosted by the vector director himself the vector director. I think we should do a corporate video graphics show, like yeah. how to animate bullet points, make the logo tear bigger, part of motor. What's the logo show? Yeah, that sounds good. Make the logo big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed it took till the end of the show for that to happen. <laughs> oh, okay. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.